This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is A Forgiving Heart. In the first half, Stephen M. Sandberg shares his address, The Light of Forgiving. Then in the second half, James M. Harper speaks on 70 times 7. The scriptures distinguish between two types of forgiving. God forgiving us of our sins and each of us forgiving each other. I want to focus today mostly on that second type of forgiving, the forgiving that we as flawed, imperfect human beings can do. I'll start with two examples of people who chose to forgive someone who drastically affected their lives. Victoria Ruvola was driving home in November 2004 from a concert in which her niece had performed. As she neared her house, her windshield was suddenly smashed in by a 20-pound frozen turkey, which had been thrown from a car traveling in the opposite direction on the two-lane road. The turkey shattered the glass in the windshield and bent the steering wheel before crushing the bones in her cheeks and jaw, fracturing the socket of her left eye, causing her esophagus to cave in and leaving her with brain trauma. Her friend in the passenger seat managed to stop the car and cradled her head until the ambulance arrived. Victoria didn't wake up until weeks later in a rehabilitation hospital. She learned that her attacker was Ryan Cushing, an 18-year-old college freshman. With Ryan facing a potential sentence of 25 years in prison, Victoria decided to reach out to Ryan's lawyer to figure out a way for a more lenient sentence. Victoria said, On the day we went to court, Ryan walked in with his head hung down and looked so upset with himself. When I saw him there, my heart went out to him. To me, he looked like a lost soul. Once the case was over and it was time for him to walk out, he started veering over towards where I was sitting, and every court officer was ready to jump on him. They had no idea why he was coming towards me. But as he walked over to where I stood, and he stood in front of me, I saw that all he was doing was crying, crying profusely. He looked at me and said, I never meant this to happen to you. I prayed for you every day. I'm so glad you're doing well. All I could do, Victoria wrote, was take him and cuddle him like a child and tell him, take this experience and do something good with your life. After Ryan's release from serving six months in prison, he taught school children about empathy and forgiveness, and he and Victoria even co-wrote a book about their experience. Aunt Vicky, as Victoria was known to her family, brought Ryan, her attacker, into the same circle of love as her nieces and nephews. I see in this image the light of Aunt Vicky's forgiveness just beginning to penetrate the distraught haze around Ryan. Victoria later said, some people couldn't understand why I'd done this, but I felt God had given me a second chance and I wanted to pass it on. Meanwhile, another connection was being made. In October 2005, President Gordon B. Hinckley gave a masterful sermon on forgiveness. He recounted the experience of Victoria Ruvolo. One of the people listening that day 
was Chris Williams. Chris later said, I sat there in that conference and I asked myself the question, could I do that? And I didn't know. That was an incredibly powerful exercise to go through, to forgive people, to walk through life with that kind of attitude. That is for, F-O-R-E, as in before giveness. Asking ourselves, is that something I could do? And deciding that it's something we want to be able to do prepares us to be better able to forgive other people. Not even a year and a half later, an intoxicated 17-year-old driver crashed into the car Chris was driving, killing Chris's wife, Michelle, their unborn child she was carrying, and two of their other children, Ben and Anna. Yet somehow in his extreme grief and shock, Chris, as he was still sitting in his crushed car, knew he had to let go and forgive this unknown driver of the other car. Chris later learned the driver was Cameron White. Chris met with Cameron at a juvenile detention facility, and Chris and Cameron talked about how the deaths of Chris's family members had affected Chris and the rest of his family. Cameron looked directly into Chris's eyes and asked, after all that I've done to your family, how is it that you were able to forgive me? Chris leaned forward and said, if there's anything you've seen me do, or heard me say, or have read about me regarding forgiveness, you should know that it was merely the Savior working through me. Chris Williams also offered to Cameron White this divine gift of forgiving, and he identified the true source of its light, Jesus Christ. Christ's light helped heal both Chris and Cameron. Cameron married in 2012 and has two beautiful daughters. Cameron has let it go and is forgiving himself daily and is thriving. We know from many scriptural accounts that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, a light that is endless, that can never be darkened. The Savior also taught on the Sermon on the Mount that ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. And further elucidated this concept later as the resurrected Lord when he told the gathered Nephites to hold up your light that it may shine unto the world. Behold, I am the light which ye shall hold up, that which ye have seen me do. The Savior invites each of us to be a light as we hold him up as the light. He who made himself an offering for sin offers to each of us the opportunity to be co-healers and extend his light to those around us. The Apostle John confirms that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. The context of John's account is important. Jesus is at the temple, and the scribes and Pharisees have brought before him a woman taken in adultery. They attempt to do two reprehensible things simultaneously— to publicly shame this vulnerable woman and to accuse Jesus by asking how the law of Moses should apply to her. Jesus' response turns the accusation back to them. He says, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Convicted by their own conscience, they disperse one at a time. 
Then when they have all left, Jesus asks the woman directly, Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus then proclaims to those at the temple, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I'm struck by the way the Gospel of John juxtaposes this powerful story of Christ's forgiveness with Christ's proclamation that he is the light. A dear friend reminded me a couple of weeks ago that nothing, not death or life, not things present or things to come, not mean people or well-meaning people, not even angels, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. My friend has experienced a betrayal that cuts deeply and that still hurts, but he knows in whom he has trusted. The way forward is to follow Jesus Christ, and often it's forgiving others that helps them, that helps us and them come into the light. When I was an 18-year-old college freshman here at BYU, I took a theater class my first semester and somehow found myself cast in a main stage production of Shakespeare's Macbeth. I had no, honestly, no acting experience. One play in eighth grade doesn't really count. And I had no business being on that stage with truly excellent actors, some of whom you've seen in TV shows and movies. In our version of Macbeth, we were recreating an early Druidic version of the play, and we used real swords on stage. I'm sure my risk management colleagues here at BYU are wondering what sort of event approval process we had in place back then. My character was Malcolm, one of Duncan's two sons. At the end of the play, a group of us celebrates when Macduff saves us from Macbeth. But on one of the performances, I raised my hand in the air to celebrate. My hand that was still holding my sword. Isaac Walters, who was playing Seward, was standing right next to me. And I cut him across the face with my sword. I watched in total panic as the cut along his cheekbone immediately turned red and began drizzling real blood. Even now, I feel terrible remembering it and thinking how much worse it could have been. It was so close to his eye. I completely broke character and just started apologizing. Isaac remembers saying to me, you've got to hold on. You've got the final speech. (laughs) Isaac, still in character as Seward, counseling a young, distraught Malcolm, helped me keep it together long enough to finish the play. Isaac also immediately forgave me that night. But I noticed as I watched my old video of the play that Isaac is not next to me. I'm guessing this filmed performance was one of the later ones, and he knew better than to risk standing next to me again. So often... The people we hurt in our lives, unintentionally or even intentionally, are those closest to us, those who mean the most to us. The feeling of hurt is exacerbated by the closeness of our relationships as roommates, friends, and family members. It's hardest when the hurt comes from people we love and trust. 
In my work as a lawyer, I've seen how the law is far more concerned with rules and justice than it is about mercy and forgiveness. One thing the law does is attempt to distinguish between doing something intentionally and doing something unintentionally, with harsher punishments attaching when people mean to cause harm. The law even has gradations for analyzing how much a person meant to do something intentionally or knowingly or recklessly or negligently. In law school, we memorize Latin and English phrases like scienter and with malice aforethought. Now, here's what the doctrine of forgiveness has to say about all those legal distinctions. It doesn't matter with respect to our obligation to forgive. It doesn't matter why or how the frozen turkey or the swerving vehicle or the sword affects our life. The commandment to forgive all men doesn't contain a caveat. It doesn't have an asterisk with a footnote saying, except for when it was really and intentionally cruel. Let me also be clear about what forgiving doesn't mean. Elder Neil L. Anderson explains, forgiveness is not excusing accountability or failing to protect ourselves and our families and other innocent victims. Forgiveness is not continuing in a relationship with someone who is not trustworthy. Forgiveness is not condoning injustice. Forgiveness is not dismissing the hurt we feel because of the actions of others. Forgiveness is not forgetting, but remembering in peace. In preparing this devotional, I asked my kids when it's hardest to forgive. They said, when we've done nothing wrong, or when it's personal, or in the moment when we're taken aback. They also said this, it's hardest to forgive ourselves. Forgiving ourselves. This is the message I've sensed I'm really supposed to share today. That you, each one of you, each and every one of you, all of us here today, or watching or listening later on, is a beloved daughter or son of heavenly parents who has infinite and divine worth, and that you are worth being and feeling forgiven. And our Savior wants to help you forgive yourself. My friend Deborah Farmer Chris recently published an article about how the internal chatter of kids is not always kind, that their critical self-talk can literally be visible on their faces when they get a bad grade or forget their lines or miss a basket or face social rejection. Our self-narrative as kids and former kids too often goes like this. I knew I wasn't good enough, and now this proves I don't measure up. Deborah suggests practicing self-compassion, part of an implicit and explicit self-narrative that acknowledges we all make mistakes. We all have rough days. When you find that your inner critical voice is louder than your compassionate voice, imagine what you might say to a close friend in a similar situation. You would sit with them in empathy. You would offer words of hope. You would point out their strengths and remind them that they are loved. 
I know Christ would do this for you if he sat beside you. Can you become that friend to yourself? When Christ asks us to act with compassion unto the least of these, that includes you and how you treat yourself. Brian Stevenson, a lawyer and the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, who spoke at a BYU campus forum in 2018, says it this way, We are all broken by something. We have all hurt someone and have been hurt. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is not equivalent. Being broken is what makes us human. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. Some of us may think we are more inherently broken than others, or that what we've done puts us beyond the realm of forgiveness. This is what Brian Stevenson would tell his clients whenever things got really bad and they were questioning the value of their lives. I would remind them that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. I told them that if a person tells a lie, that person is not just a liar. If you take something that doesn't belong to you, you are not just a thief. Even if you kill someone, you're not just a killer. There is a strength, a power even, in understanding brokenness because embracing our brokenness creates a need and desire for mercy and perhaps a corresponding need to show mercy. Last year, President Worthen reminded our BYU community of this truth. Each of us is a beloved spirit, son, or daughter of heavenly parents with a divine nature and destiny. This description is universal. It applies to everyone in this audience, everyone on this campus, every person who lives on this earth and all who have lived or will ever live on this earth and on worlds without number. In other words, this includes you. Not just the people sitting beside you today or your classmates or roommates who seem to be living a charmed life. It includes them, of course, but it also specifically and individually includes you. We are all broken and utterly dependent on the Savior for forgiveness of our sins. And it can be our mistakes our misfortunes, our missed opportunities, our trying times, even our tragedies that bind us together in love and forgiveness when we choose to forgive others and ourselves. Even if we meant to do things that harmed others and ourselves in the past, we can mean now to be better and do better as we follow Jesus Christ. We can then say, like Adam, blessed be the name of God, for because of my transgression, my eyes are opened, and in this life I shall have joy, and again in the flesh I shall see God. And like Eve, were it not for our transgression, we never should have had seed, and never should have known good and evil, and the joy of our redemption, and the eternal life which God giveth unto all the obedient. As we forgive others and ourselves, we will know and feel that all shall be well.
and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Last week, President Ballard spoke his love to all of you. I want to do the same and tell each of you, especially those of you who feel left out or not welcome or othered here at BYU. I want to tell you, my international sisters and brothers, my black sisters and brothers, my LGBTQ sisters and brothers, my new to the faith and my uncertain of their faith sisters and brothers, my lonely sisters and brothers, all of my sisters and brothers, I love you. And I know that Jesus Christ and our heavenly parents love you. I know that Jesus Christ is the light that makes forgiveness possible. And that as we forgive each other and ourselves, we will feel his love and experience his light in this life and even more fully in the eternal world to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is A Forgiving Heart. We've just heard from Stephen M. Sandberg. After the break, we'll return with James M. Harper for 70 times 7. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is a forgiving heart. Next is James M. Harper, chair of the BYU Family Sciences Department at the time of this address, titled 70 Times 7. In my work as a marriage and family therapist, I often see people who are searching for a transformation of their heart. How is your heart today? Is it a warm heart filled with the fruits of the Spirit? An aching heart? A broken heart? A grieving heart? A distracted heart so caught up in your thoughts and actions that it is difficult to feel? An overburdened heart so burdened by feelings that it is difficult to think? A weary heart wishing that somehow, some way, you could escape from your current condition? Or is yours a fluttering heart filled with the thrill of romantic love? an overflowing heart, a loving heart? Or could it possibly be a repentant heart, a giving heart, even a forgiving heart? Some time ago, a wife sat with her husband in my office. He had been unfaithful and had submitted himself to the loving influence of Church discipline. I had seen them several times and the damage to the heart of their relationship was slowly healing. He had made much progress with help from his bishop and stake president, and their relationship as a couple was perhaps better than it had been in a long time. With tears running down her cheeks, she looked deeply into my eyes and asked, I know I need to forgive, but how do I do it? My heart does not seem to let go. I think I can learn to forgive my husband, but I feel damaged as though I can never possibly forgive the other woman. I gave an inadequate, inconsequential answer to her question, but her words have remained in my mind and surfaced on many different occasions since that time. 
I know I need to forgive, but how do I do it? She needed a transformation of her heart, and she wanted it to be immediate. Her husband wanted so badly to be forgiven. She felt that she had made some progress, but when she slipped, he became upset. For him, he was either forgiven or not, and it was difficult for him to see that she was making considerable progress on a continuum toward being more forgiving. In one of his interactions with Pharisees, Jesus accused them of ignoring the weightier matters of the law—judgment, mercy, and faith. Are you taking good care of your heart, especially with the natural healers of mercy and faith? Do you take daily doses of mercy and faith to guard your heart from damage? During a discussion about conflict and offense in personal relationships, Peter asked Jesus, How oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive? Till seven times? Jesus answered, No, not seven times, but seventy times seven. Did he really mean seventy times seven or four hundred and ninety times? I am sure that Peter thought seven times was gracious, a generous outpouring of his heart and his patience to even consider forgiving seven times. But Christ's answer was seventy times more than what Peter had offered. Then our older brother, the firstborn of our Heavenly Father, told his disciples this story recorded in Matthew chapter 18. It was time for a king to settle the accounts of those in his kingdom. One person owed the king a great deal of money, in fact, ten thousand talents. He had no means to pay. And so he was ordered to sell all that he had, and then he, along with his wife and children, were to be sold into slavery to pay their debt. As you and I might have done, he pleaded for mercy. Can you imagine what you might have said? On your knees, your heart pounding with fear, begging for the freedom of your wife and your children? Whatever this debtor said, the king's heart was moved with compassion. The pleading words of a father and husband softly invaded the heart of the king, and it was transformed. He forgave the debt. This man and his family were free, yet he would later be guilty of what psychologists call the attribution error. When we are hurt, it is the natural tendency of all of us to assume that the offender intended to commit an offense against us, and so we blame them and their character. But when it comes to us, we attribute our shortcomings, our actions, which others may experience as hurtful, to some situation or circumstance outside of us. We should not be blamed, we cry. It is a circumstance. So it was with this forgiven debtor. You know the rest of the story. When another owed him money, a merciful heart eluded him and he administered the law of justice and cast his fellow servant into prison until he would pay the debt. And as you know, when his Lord discovered it, he was angry and administered the same fate to a man once forgiven who had become unforgiving. Jesus summarizes with a message to all of us. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you If ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. The scriptures are replete with similar verses. 
Consider, for example, Mark 11, verses 25 to 26. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. The Book of Mormon also says similar things. Third Nephi, chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Doctrine and Covenants, section 64, verse 10, tells us, And ye ought to say in your hearts, Let God judge between me and thee, and reward thee according to thy deeds. Jesus proposed a culture that would not be limited by ethnic, religious, political, or economic conditions. In his culture, our relationships with each other are regulated by our continual recognition of God's forgiving love for each of us. His is a radical proposal in which our desires to live out our forgivenness form the basic foundation of our interpersonal relationships. Are you forgiven? In a faraway garden a long time ago, drops of blood oozed from every pore of our older brother. His heart was a pained heart, full of burden for our mistakes, offenses, and yes, even our pain and heartache. His heart hurt so much that he pleaded that the bitterness of the cup might be removed. His was a merciful heart a heart that went beyond justice to recover you and me. As you witness our Savior and what He was willing to suffer for us, as you watch the cruelty forced upon Him, so undeserving of such treatment in His utter innocence and total purity, does your own heart overflow with sorrow and love and gratitude for Him? He invites us to partake of His love and the healing power of His atonement. Have you accepted his offering, his great gift? And if so, does it enervate every cell of your heart? Or have you rejected his invitation to carry your burdens, to take away your pain, and to allow yourself to partake of his peace? Have you examined lately the principles governing your important relationships? Are you extending your forgiveness to your relationships with roommates? your forgiveness to your marriage partner, to your children, to your parents? Is yours a merciful, forgiving heart? Is yours a giving heart, especially to those close to you, rather than a critical or judging heart? In today's world, there are some, perhaps too many, who see evil and sin as relative or non-existent. These people encourage us to be tolerant of diverse lifestyles, and they tempt us to make tolerance the basis of our relationships rather than forgiveness. In an address to the Twelve in 1839, the Prophet Joseph Smith encouraged, Ever keep and exercise the principle of mercy, and be ready to forgive our brother on the first intimations of repentance and asking forgiveness. And should we even forgive our brother or even our enemy, before he repent or ask forgiveness, our Heavenly Father would be equally merciful unto us. In addressing the Relief Society, Joseph taught, the nearer we get to our Heavenly Father, the more we are disposed to look with compassion on perishing souls. 
We feel that we want to take them upon our shoulders to cast their sins behind our backs. If you would have God have mercy on you, have mercy on one another. What is forgiveness? What does forgiveness mean? Does forgiving mean that we forget the offense? No, yet the adage, forgive and forget, is frequently heard in our culture. In fact, it may be that our beliefs about forgetting sometimes get in the way of forgiving. Daniel Wegner, a psychologist, has conducted research on persistent thought. He had undergraduate students imagine a white bear. Then he told them to try not to think about the white bear. Each time they thought of the white bear, they were to ring a bell. The more the students tried not to think about the bear, the more they rang the bell. Have you tried to put some unwanted event out of your mind only to find that your thoughts were even more filled with the event? It is possible that over time our memory of a hurtful event may fade, but it is not necessary for us to lose our memory of an event to transform our hearts to forgiveness. But forgiveness does mean that we are able to put the offense in a broad perspective within the rest of our life. Certainly, all of us are much more than simply someone who has been hurt. There are many more events in our lives than hurtful ones. When we become forgiving, we are not obsessed with thinking about the offense all the time. Yes, we can remember it, but we are not obsessed with it, and it does not consume our emotional energy. Thoughts and feelings about it do not distract us from doing other important things. It means we do not spend time harboring fantasies of revenge, wishing that another would suffer as much as we have. It means that we escape from becoming a cynic about the world and about our relationships. It means that we become less focused on blame and judgment and more focused on transforming our own heart. Forgiveness means that we develop a mature understanding of what happened and leave punishment and judgment to a wise Heavenly Father. Is forgiving more for the other person or more for us? Developing a forgiving heart will do far more for you than it ever will for the person who has hurt you. It is a gift you give yourself. Are we required to forgive even mean, bad people who may never repent and may never come asking for forgiveness of us? Are we required to forgive even those who have knowingly sinned and in the process wounded our heart, our very soul? What if a person who has wronged me never comes to beg? If forgiving is more of a gift we give ourselves rather than for the other person, the answer is yes, we are required to do all of this for ourselves if for no one else. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 64, verse 10, the message is clear. Of you, it is required to forgive all men. It is impossible for family members to live together without occasionally hurting each other. During my married life, I have given my wife numerous opportunities to develop forgiveness. In fact, I've given her so many opportunities, she has an enlarged heart, one crammed full of forgiving. According to the First Presidency's Proclamation on the Family to the World, forgiveness is one of the principles upon which happy marriages and families can be built. I have seen the results of unmerciful hearts in my clinical practice. Oh, if we could learn to be the first to seek forgiveness with our marriage partner. 
in my experiencing, focusing on others' actions clouds our ability to transform our heart. It is easier to blame and judge than it is to work on major heart surgery. We often think the responsibility for such healing rests with the other person. He holds my heart in his hand, she says, and until he apologizes or pays for what he has done, I cannot free my heart from his grip. Is your heart captive in such a way to someone else? Being quick to apologize, saying I'm sorry, and transforming our angry hearts to forgiving hearts, overflowing with a mindset of our own forgiveness, are balms to open wounds. I determined early in our married life to use apology liberally, and my heart has thrived because of my decision. Through a forgiving temperament, you make the atonement a daily, even hourly, commitment in your relationships. Your own forgiveness permits you to forgive. I have seen divorced persons struggle to get balance in their minds and hearts. They often find thoughts of bitterness and unforgiving occupying too much space in their minds. The anger and blame have pressed themselves into every crevice of their heart, leaving little room for more healing feelings. I have seen adult children who find that their pain, a consequence of imperfect parents, takes over their lives. Of course parents are, imp are imperfect, even when they try to do their best. This last year, my teenage daughter registered for several AP and Honors courses. At the end of a particularly difficult term, as she faced finals week and was under maximum stress, I asked one morning what I could do to help her. She replied that she needed to finish a sculpture, a covered bowl in the shape of a turtle, and she was going to work on it later after school. I could help by soaking the turtle in water so that the clay would be more pliable when she came home from school. She left for school, and I proceeded to unwrap the turtle dish. I filled the sink with water and submerged the turtle. My daughter had told me to let it soak for a few minutes. I determined that ten minutes would be good and went about other business. I lost track of time, eventually realized my error, and returned to the bathroom sink. I reached into the water with both hands, and as I removed them, the shapeless turtle dripped through my fingers and disappeared back into the water. In wanting to help, I had made things far worse. How would I explain this when my daughter came home? Would this be one of those events that would damage her for life? <laughs> would she look back on her high school years and remember nothing but how her father murdered the clay turtle by drowning it in the sink? You see, I believe our greatest fear as parents is that our children might in some way be like us. I wasn't sure that I would handle this situation particularly well if the sides were reversed. When my daughter arrived home for school, I was anxiously waiting. I had practiced many speeches in my mind. Some of them were more filled with admissions of responsibility than others. I started by telling her that I had something awful to tell her. When she heard about the demise of the turtle, she smiled and simply said, Dad, you really owe me one for this. <laughs> she is by nature forgiving, and my imperfections had once again failed to damage her too much. 
Elder Jeffrey R. Holland once described a painful situation in his family. He said, Early in our married life, my young family and I were laboring through graduate school at a university in New England. Pat was a Relief Society president in our ward, and I was serving in our state presidency. I was going to school full-time and teaching half-time. We had two small children then, with little money and lots of pressures. One evening, I came home from long hours at school, feeling the proverbial weight of the world on my shoulders. Everything seemed to be especially demanding and discouraging and dark. I wondered if the dawn would ever come. Maybe some of you who are students feel that way yourselves. Then, as I walked into our small apartment, Elder Holland continues, there was an unusual silence in the room. What's the trouble? I asked. Matthew has something he wants to tell you, Pat said. Matt, what do you have to tell me? He was quietly playing with his toys in the corner of the room, trying very hard not to hear me. Matt, I said a little louder, do you have something to tell me? He stopped playing, but for a moment he didn't look up. Then two enormous, tear-filled brown eyes turned toward me, and with the pain only a five-year-old can know, he said, I didn't mind Mommy tonight, and I spoke back to her. With that, he burst into tears, and his entire little body shook with grief. A childish indiscretion had been noted. A painful confession had been offered. The growth of a five-year-old was continuing and loving reconciliation would have been wonderfully underway. Everything might have been just terrific, except for me. If you can imagine, I lost my temper. It wasn't that I lost it with Matt. It was with a hundred and one other things on my mind. But he didn't know that, and I wasn't disciplined enough to admit it. He got the whole load of bricks. I told him how disappointed I was and how much more I thought I could have expected from him. I sounded like the parental pygmy I was. Then I did what I had never done before in his life. I told him that he was to go straight to bed and that I would not be in to say his prayers with him or to tell him a bedtime story. Muffling his sobs, he obediently went to his bedside where he knelt alone to say his prayers. Then he stained his little pillow with tears his father should have been wiping away. If you think silence upon my arrival was heavy, you should have felt it now. Pat did not say a word. She didn't have to. Later, as we knelt by our own bed, my feeble prayer for blessings upon my family fell back on my ears with a horrible, hollow ring. I wanted to get up off my knees right then and go to Matt and ask for his forgiveness but he was long since asleep. My own relief was not so soon coming, but finally I fell asleep and began to dream. In his dream, Elder Holland packed two cars, and when one was packed, he told Matt to drive the car. Matt crawled into the seat and started the motor. As Elder Holland pulled away, he looked in the rearview mirror to see how his son was doing. Matt was trying, but he couldn't reach the pedals. He was turning knobs and pushing buttons but he could scarcely see over the dash. Elder Holland continues. As I pulled away, he cried out, Daddy, don't leave me. I don't know how to do it. I'm too little. And I drove away. A short time later in his dream, he realizes what he had done. 
He stops his car and runs back to find his son. I kept running, praying, pleading to be forgiven and to find my boy safe and secure. As I rounded a curve, nearly ready to drop from physical and emotional exhaustion, I saw the car I had left Matt to drive. It was pulled carefully off to the side of the road, and he was laughing and playing nearby. An older man was with him, playing and responding to his games. Matt saw me and cried out something like, Hi, Dad. We're having fun. Obviously, he had already forgiven and forgotten my terrible transgression against him. But I dreaded the older man's gaze, which followed my every move. I tried to say thank you, but his eyes were filled with sorrow and disappointment. I muttered an awkward apology, and the stranger said simply, You should not have left him alone to do this difficult thing. It would not have been asked of you. With that, the dream ended, and I shot upright in bed. My pillow was stained, whether with perspiration or tears, I do not know. I threw off the covers and ran to the little metal camp cot that was my son's bed. There on my knees and through my tears, I cradled him in my arms and spoke to him while he slept. I told him that every dad makes mistakes, but that they don't mean to. I told him that when boys are 5 or 15, dads sometimes forget and think they are 50. I told him that I wanted him to be a small boy for a long, long time because all too soon he would grow up and be a man and wouldn't be playing on the floor with his toys when I came home. I told him that I loved him, and his mother and sister I also loved more than anything in the world, and that whatever challenges we had in life, we would face them together. I told him that never again would I withhold my affection or my forgiveness from him, and never, I prayed, would he withhold them from me. I told him that I was honored to be his father and that I would try with all my heart to be worthy of such a great responsibility. Every parent is blessed when they have forgiving children. I have seen parents who have had difficulty forgiving themselves because they felt they had to be perfect. This belief made it difficult for them to ever say they were sorry to their children. They always had to be right, more knowledgeable, more grown up. Such beliefs can constrain parents from seeking forgiveness from their children and forgiving themselves. I have seen survivors of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse struggle with the doctrine of forgiveness. They often feel that if they were to forgive, it lets the offender off the hook or that it minimizes the hurt and damage. Yet they fail to realize transforming their heart to a forgiving heart is a gift they give themselves. It will do far more for them than it will ever do for their offender. So how do I forgive? I have noticed that I might be able to explain the doctrine of forgiveness and forgiving. But when I'm on the highway and offended by another driver, I often act like Attila the Hun. Is it likewise difficult for you to eliminate blame and judgment from your relationships with your roommates, your spouse, your parents, or even your children? Do you find yourself saying, they'll get theirs, and then fantasizing about possible punishments they might receive? Perhaps you even hope to be able to do the punishing to hurt another as much as they've hurt you. So how do we make this comprehensive change of heart called forgiving? First, you must work to put the atonement into the very cells of your heart 
so that your own sense of your own forgiveness, his plea for you by name, is ever present. You will only be able to do so with much sincere prayer. If anyone ever had more reason to be bitter, it was the prophet Joseph Smith. Yet his heart was forgiving. Prior to the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, William Smith, the prophet's brother, a member of the Twelve, had been embittered. He had said vicious and vile things against his brother, the prophet, in public. His was a distracted, vengeful heart, and he had even physically attacked his brother Joseph and beat him with his fists. The Smith parents and other children were deeply pained. The prophet described this time as Satan trying to divide his family to thwart the work and the building of the Kirtland Temple. Yet, in the midst of all of this, Daniel Tyler, a member of the Church, recorded in his journal this description of the prophet Joseph. At the time, William Smith and others rebelled against the prophet at Kirtland. I attended a meeting on the flats where Joseph presided. Entering the schoolhouse a little before the meeting opened and gazing upon the man of God, I perceived sadness in his countenance and tears trickling down his cheeks. A few moments later, a hymn was sung and he opened the meeting by prayer. But instead of facing the audience, he turned his back and bowed upon his knees facing the wall. This, I suppose, was done to hide his sorrow and tears. I had heard men and women pray, especially the former, from the most ignorant both as to letters and intellect to the most learned and eloquent. But never until then had I heard a man address his Maker as though he was president, listening as a kind father would listen to the sorrows of a dutiful child. Joseph was at the time unlearned, but that prayer, which was to a considerable extent in behalf of those who accused him of having gone astray and fallen into sin, was that the Lord would forgive them and open their eyes that they might see aright. That prayer, I say, to my humble mind, partook of the learning and eloquence of heaven. There was no ostentation, no raising of the voices by enthusiasm, but a plain conversational tone, as a man would address a present friend. It appeared to me as though the veil were taken away and I could see the Lord standing facing his humblest of all servants I had ever seen. It was the crowning of all the prayers I had ever heard. And so ends the testimony of Daniel Tyler. Our attitude in prayer will help transform our grieving, angry hearts into forgiving hearts. A third thing you can do is to develop more empathy for others in your life, especially for those who have hurt and offended us. In each of us is a child of God. Have you found yours? And are you nurturing this child to grow into godhood? We greatly improve our ability to forgive by improving our ability to understand other circumstances, their feelings, their situation, in short, to empathize with them. Studies have shown that when people learn to be more empathetic with others, they automatically develop more forgiving temperaments. Likewise, marital partners who have more empathy for each other are more forgiving, more committed to their relationship, they report more trust, and are happier. A couple once counseled with a priesthood leader. Her heart was weary, and she was tired of trying to keep their marriage alive. She blamed her husband for most of the lesions on her heart. 
the inspired leader responded, If you could see him as he will be in his perfected state, you would give all the energy of your heart to be with him. On several occasions, different mothers have recounted a similar story to me. They were all survivors of sexual abuse. Forgiveness was a struggle for each of them. Then someone in their family was accused of abusing another. Usually the accused was one of their children. Can you imagine what happens to a mother's insides when her child is so accused, especially when she has personally suffered at the hands of a similar transgressor? Yet all of these women have told me that eventually they were able to see their own transgressors in a new light, as children of God who had made a terrible mistake but who someday may repent and receive God's forgiveness. Such transformation had allowed them to sacrifice fantasies of revenge and turn judgment over to God. They permitted Christ's blood to surround their pain and cleanse their hearts with peace. Enlarging our vision and interest about those who offend us can help us develop greater empathy. Consider someone who has recently offended you. Who is their mother? Do they have a family? Have they ever grieved over the loss of a loved one? What has been disappointing to them about their life? Do they like themselves? Where is the child of God in them? Can Christ's blood cleanse them as it can me? Forgiveness is a relational stance in which we accept the inherent worth of another person even after judging their actions to be wrong. Another thing you can do is to watch your storytelling about the offensive event. In retelling the story about how we have been offended, we can tell it in such a way that we either push pain, anger, and grief deeper into the cells of our heart, or we free ourselves. When someone has hurt us, it seems obvious who needs to do the changing. Yet we seldom focus on our need to purify and transform our hearts so that they can be whole, open, and alive to goodness. Don't let the negative storytelling consume your relationships with others. Our own moral behavior, such as holding our tongue when we feel like gossiping about someone who has hurt us, can lead to a deeper moral understanding. Don't put energy into unforgiveness. Rather, put it into transforming your heart. Social scientists have described how reasoning about forgiveness develops. At early developmental stages of reasoning, children develop revengeful forgiveness. At this stage, we reason that an offender must be punished to the degree of pain her or his offense has caused. As we get older, we progress to reasoning that sounds something like this. I feel guilty because an offender offers restitution, so I feel I must forgive them. This is called restitutional forgiveness. Some of us may use expectational forgiveness. We forgive because society, parents, and religion expect us to offer forgiveness. However, the most mature form of reasoning is forgiveness as love. In this highest form of reasoning about forgiveness, we value others because we know in our minds and feel in our hearts that they have inherent worth as children of God. In this state, we can value them even when they are selfish and inconsiderate. Yes, even when they hurt us immensely. The heart-cleansing scrub of the atonement permits us to envision them eventually transformed as people of repentance and even light. Let me turn to perhaps the most difficult of struggles with forgiveness, forgiving ourselves. Some of us have bought into Satan's ploy that whatever we have done has made us unworthy forever. 
We tell ourselves that we don't deserve any good thing to happen to us because we are bad, flawed at the very core, polluted in some way, beyond hope. Some of you continue to feel this way even after extensive confession and work with ecclesiastical leaders. The principles of transforming your heart are the same. You must put the atonement into the cells of your heart. Sincere prayer will be an important ongoing balm. You must develop empathy for yourself. Has it ever occurred to you that good people repent because they have made a mistake? Yes, they feel guilty because they have violated a standard that is important. Guilt can be healthy if it helps us change behavior, but if we use shame instead of guilt to see ourselves as bad people, we may change behavior, but in such thinking, does change of behavior matter if we still feel bad, shamed at the core? When you repent, it is important to get in touch with the inherent goodness inside of you, that child of God in you seeking for more intention. You must be careful of the stories you tell yourself in your mind about what you have done. You are not a bad person. You are a good person who has made a mistake and can change. Transformation does not usually happen all at once. Forgiveness can take time, and it may be helpful to think of the process of forgiving on a continuum with unforgiveness at one extreme and forgiving at the other. A forgiving heart will bless you in a number of ways. Research shows that people who are forgiving have better emotional and physical health, and their relationships with people are more satisfying. Remember, you need a forgiving heart for you more than for your offender. On a cross in Calvary, your brother and my brother hung in agony. His heart was full of physical pain, yet he was transformed. He looked upon his offenders and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. My testimony is that he lives, and I pray you will allow the chemistry of his blood to encircle your heart and transform your forgiveness to forgiving as a foundation for all of your relationships. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was A Forgiving Heart with thoughts from Stephen M. Sandberg and James M. Harper. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.